You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. The Russian government appears to have been offering bounties on U.S. soldiers last year in Afghanistan. They paid Taliban militants to try to target and kill Americans, including possibly even directly financing the killing of some of them. The Trump administration knew about this. They knew about this as early as March 2019. They knew about it in February of 2020, and they've done nothing. And since the information about this has gone public, they have still done nothing. With just yesterday, President Trump declaring that the entire thing, which is backed up by what seems like a pretty voluminous amount of intelligence gathered by the U.S. government, is a hoax. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to do a deep dive into this entire situation, which I think is best described as a scandal at this point in the United States. First, we're going to talk about why it is that Russia would do this and how we know that Russia is doing it. And then we're going to talk about why it is that the Trump administration is not responding to what is an act of war by a nuclear armed rival. I'm Zach Beecham here with Jen Williams. Alex is on vacation somewhere doing something. I don't know exactly what, but I don't know what Alex does when he's not working. That's not a question that we really want answers to, I think, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. <laughs> I was going to say like, Watching reruns of, of like Red Sox playoffs victories, like probably I, yeah. watching stand up comedy specials on Netflix. I don't know. Oh, but that's I, probably right. Yeah, I hope that whatever it is, he is enjoying himself and relaxing and taking some well deserved time off. Alex is living the life, whatever the life is for Alex. We don't, again, we don't know what this is. Jen and I are not going to speculate about it. <laughs> it's it, it's it's theoretically a good time for him. Uh, but now we're going to have a great time. No, maybe great time. I don't know. It's pretty dark subject matter, right? So I, I have a great it's time great. talking about foreign policy, though, so it's okay. <laughs> we always we always have a good time here, even when it's uh, when it's depressing. Worldly, we have fun even when the world is burning. All right. <laughs> I hope you, I hope some of you put that in your podcast reviews for Jen's birthday. Jen, you did see that, right? That our loyal fans. I did. Fans. Thank you, everyone. You are amazing. Alex sent me a screenshot of some of them. And I almost cried. And if I had feelings and a heart, I would have cried. Yeah, but it's really, it's really sweet, y'all. It's really, yeah, so. really sweet that you celebrated Jen's birthday. You guys are rad. Thanks comments. so much. We really love you, our listeners. Uh, you're just the best. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, Jen, what do we know? Like, what actually do we know about this program that the Russians were allegedly doing last year? All right. So, just kind of starting off with the, the basic caveat that this is all. Uh, classified 
intelligence that has been reported uh, starting off by the New York Times and then additional reporting by several other news outlets. But the New York Times has been basically leading the coverage of breaking the news on this story, to their credit. So with that said, you know, I haven't seen personally, Zach hasn't personally seen the evidence of what, you know, this intelligence assessment is based on. But it seems like at this point, intelligence and what we know that has been reported about it is pretty solid. So what we know so far is that it looks like in 2019, the GRU, which is the military intelligence kind of body in Russia, um, there's not really a direct straight analog to that in the United States. We have the Defense Intelligence Agency, but it's not really the same kind of thing. They kind of control the GRU special forces. They report to the military, um, you know, hierarchy, but they're a very powerful branch. They were also the ones who were very heavily involved in the Russian interference in the 2016 election. So this GRU and a special unit specifically within the GRU um, seems to have launched this scheme to funnel money to the Taliban through this intermediary. Um, this kind of mid-level business guy uh, in, in Afghanistan who would basically be wired cash somehow. Um, there seems to be a lot of this intelligence seems to be based on information on, on these wire transfers. Um, looks like U.S. intelligence was was following this guy for various reasons and ended up doing a big sweeping kind of raid on on his his property and ended up finding a huge amount of cash uh, and was like, this is weird. Why is this guy so rich? Uh, and it turns out that basically, as far as we know, Russia and the GRU was funneling money through this guy to give to the Taliban to offer as bounties, um, either for Taliban fighters themselves, it's not quite clear, uh, to attack and kill American forces or to hire like local, almost like criminal freelancers to, to kind of contract out, you know, killings and bombings. So we don't know for sure um, how many Americans, if any, were killed by this. There are at least two attacks, uh, it looks like, that their uh, U.S. intelligence is investigating specifically that may have been funded by this. Um, one in particular was a bombing at uh, outside Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan that killed three Marines. Um, so it looks like right now we have a lot of information. The New York Times talked to U.S. officials, Afghan officials. They talked to neighbors, friends, business associates of this, this Afghan businessman. It, they have seen data on the wire transfers. So there's a lot of information. I want to dwell on that point, right? Because it's, re it's really striking to me. I, we, we have covered these intelligence stories for a really long time. Uh, and oftentimes you don't get a tremendous level of detail on what exactly it is that U.S. intelligence thinks is going on in some particular right. place. You just get, spies think this. The U.S. intelligence community is estimated with a certain degree of confidence. Right. They, from classified sources and methods, blah, 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 right? But in this case, the the evidence is it's really publicly laid out in these New York Times articles uh, for whatever reason. Either the Times uh, did some really incredible reporting or some spies are leaking this with some kind of agenda or most likely some combination of both. Yeah. Um, it seems, but regardless, we, we know that there are, there's records of financial transfers from a GRU linked account. Like I don't like even that specific point, right? The fact that the U S government has identified a specific bank account as being a GRU bank account, then they trace the money from that bank account over to the Taliban through a transfer. And then this information went 
public, right? right? This this indicates a pretty tremendous amount of confidence on the part of the analysts that are involved in it. Though some of the reports say um, that there's disagreement inside the intelligence community about how certain the the information is here. Another one of the Times pieces said that 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 particular piece of information, the financial transfers, really reduced the uncertainty surrounding it. Uh, so it it yeah. strikes me that. I, like, I don't know. It's, it's as, as you said, Jen, a little bit ago, this is intelligence world stuff. It's all murky. We don't really know a ton of stuff. This is like, this is one of the more well-sourced world of spycraft stories I, I've seen in a very long time. Yeah. And the, the amount of information that has come out and the time frame in which it's come out is also really remarkable. Yeah, the right? story uh, broke on Friday and we're right, taping this, this on Thursday. It's six exactly. days. Exactly. And we know this much information now from, you know, U.S. intelligence has this assessment to now we know the actual name of this Afghan businessman. Um, we know, you know, the the which GRU unit was involved. Um, and I think it's important to kind of take a step back for a second to think about this. So, you know, I've seen a lot of kind of commentary out there, um, you know, basically warning or cautioning the press in particular of being careful of accepting what U.S. intelligence says about specifically a foreign adversary and their offensive kind of attacks or capabilities toward the U.S. And, and you know, referencing the Iraq war, right? And that, you know, a lot of the, the U.S. media was a, a bit quick to accept, you know, the assessment there were WMDs in Iraq, right? And and a lot of the criticism since then has been that the U.S. media should have pushed back and, uh, you know, and not just bought the Bush administration's arguments. So, and that is 100% a valid point to make. And, you know, I, I think, you know, for me personally, I'm not prepared to say 100% that I know that Russia did this, right? I haven't seen the evidence. But based on like we said, all of what we know, the reporting, um, and like I said, you know, the, the New York Times, you know, got this information from intelligence officials who, yes, leaked this information, but then they went out and did their own reporting, right? So they they followed it up, and they actually have reporters on the ground in Afghanistan who are talking to high-level Afghan officials, who are talking to, like I said, the neighbors and friends of this Afghan businessman who are literally saying, like, we don't know why he's rich all of a sudden. That's really weird. Um, and, and it seems that basically everyone, and they've talked to, like, it seems the large number of, of high-level U.S. and Afghan officials, right? This isn't just one or two people. So all of that said, I think we can say with a pretty high degree of confidence as far as analysis goes, for me, I'm comfortable saying it looks pretty likely that this is a thing that really happened, or at least, at the very least, it's something that has enough credibility that the president should have been told about it. Yeah, it's it, this isn't Iraq WMD 2.0, in part because, uh, and we'll get into this more in the second half, but... Uh, this is contrary to the uh, inclinations of the current administration. Part of the Iraq War scandal is that intelligence was politicized. It was pushed in the direction that the White House wanted uh, so they could justify the invasion of Iraq they wanted to do for actually nobody's – we still don't really know the reasons the U.S. invaded Iraq. <laughs> this is a whole different episode, but oh, I realized oh, I was got, talking. I've got some thoughts on that. <laughs> Everyone has theories, but no one, no one actually knows. We will go down a rabbit hole there. <laughs> Let's not go there. I just realized how weird that is, that like this was the big topic of public debate 20 years ago. It was the thing, and we still don't have a solid – okay. Sorry. Sorry, listeners, but that was just – it was really striking to me while we were talking about this. Anyway, this is not that. This is not the White House politicizing things. It's against – 
interest of the White House that the intelligence community is reporting this. Uh, and it, it also, uh, it seems weird at the outset. Like, why would the Russians do something so risky for, for what seems like a minimal strategic gain, right? They're not, you know, getting a high value American target. They're getting, uh, they're not like, like a, you know, a general or uh, a political leader, uh, they're risking an act of war with what, what seems like little long-term strategic benefit. Like they're not securing a uh, military base, oil assets, anything that one might see as geopolitically significant. But I, I think understanding this requires a little bit more subtlety about thinking about Russian motivations. And, and part of it is not fully um, – so international relations – people tend to think about things in terms of of concrete interests like that. But a lot of stuff that happens in global politics has to do with more ideological or ideational or historical motivations. And in this case, one thing that when I was uh, interviewing a bunch of experts, I was reporting about this, that came up that I thought was really striking is that there's reason to believe that some of the people in this GRU unit, which is tasked with messing with Americans internationally, as we've seen, the GRU is part of Russia's overall strategy, uh, some of them were literally veterans of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in the 1980s. Like, they've been in the Russian military intelligence world for a really long time. So they still feel the slight of American interference arming the Mujahideen militants who would eventually become the Taliban and, and other militant groups in Afghanistan. Uh, against the Soviet invaders. So for them, this is like not abstract payback. It is viscerally felt revenge for a slight that they think was done to them. Ironically, the U.S. policymakers at the time saw it as revenge for Soviet support for the North Vietnamese in the 1960s. So it's a real cycle of violence thing that's going on here. But it's important to note at the outset that the fact that Russia seems to be doing something risky without an obvious concrete motivation um, doesn't take into account the specific nature of the Russians involved in the scheme. Yeah, I think there, there's also it kind of I feel like it's a little mixed in terms of like what, you know, in more concrete kind of strategic or, or operational you know, in more concrete strategic terms, like what they may have been trying to accomplish. So, you know, on the one hand, you have, you know, Russia very much seems to think that the Taliban is going to be a very serious player in Afghanistan for the foreseeable future, which is a pretty safe assumption uh, and has been for a while now, you know, trying to reach out and make ties um, to the Taliban. It's also potentially in Russia's interest to have a very stable Afghanistan and especially one in which they have uh, a lot of, you know, access and, uh, and, and friends. Um, on the other hand, this also happened, you have to remember, at a time when the U.S. and the Taliban were trying to make a peace deal. Um, so we've seen the Taliban, by the way, Russia and the Taliban have both um, publicly denied all of these allegations. The Taliban uh, spokespeople said, why would we need incentive to kill Americans? They put it because, a little more diplomatically than that, but yeah, that's that was the gist of it. Yeah, I mean, it, that's essentially what, what they're saying, which, fair enough. Um, but I, I'm not sure I totally buy that, uh, because... You know, while the the Taliban was trying to make peace with the U.S., one of the things that they were trying to do was to hold off on and get their their members to hold off on attacks on U.S. forces. They did not, by the way, and purposely actually seem to have escalated in some cases, stop attacking Afghan forces. It's very specific difference there, but it's it's very plausible to me to see that if you know if Russia potentially wanted to 
continue to see the U.S. bogged down in Afghanistan, which, again, the Soviet Union has quite quite an experience of what that's like and how much it costs and and what it's like to have a you know a long time war in Afghanistan. Um, if Russia, for example, wanted to see that continue or wanted to disrupt the peace process for whatever reason, then you know paying Taliban militants at, you know potentially below the level of the leadership. And essentially getting them to act as spoilers to potentially disrupt the peace process and make it not happen. That that also I could see as a, as a very, you know, understandable motive in terms of, of Russia's strategic interests. So, yeah. And I mean, I mean, the overarching uh, background here is that Putin's grand strategy when it comes to the U.S. Uh, for the past five years, at least, has focused on uh, messing with the U.S. at a lower level covert kind of way and in such a fashion as to create inside internal chaos in the United States, hence the election interference, and also generally tie up U.S. foreign policy resources so they're not available to check and constrain Russian expansionism or other Russian efforts to exert its influence in different places. Basically, the idea is uh, for Russia to reassert itself as a great power, the United States needs to be weakened, divided, and distracted. Uh, and getting the U.S. stuck in a war in Afghanistan, even though Afghanistan's like right on Russia's border, right? It doesn't, they're not worried about a direct U.S. invasion of Russia because that's like not going to happen. <laughs> that's not that's not like an immediate concern of the Russians. It's maybe a long-term one, but they're not concerned that Afghanistan turns into an invasion. Let's put it that way. Um, so it, it, they think that it would probably be all to the good if the U.S. was spending a lot of resources on this kind of fight. That was Osama bin Laden's strategy against the U.S. The whole point of, of some al-Qaeda actions was to provoke a U.S. overreaction, and it, it worked. See Iraq war, the, that we were just talking about. It wouldn't be crazy for the Russians to emulate what has proven to be an effective strategy against the United States. Yeah, and I think there's one last piece here, and then we can can move on to, to looking at some of the dissenting intelligence uh, and, and why there may be some of that. Russia is also... Pretty pissed off about the fact that the U.S. has provided now under the Trump administration, it should be said, uh, lethal aid to Ukraine to fight against Russian-backed forces that are, you know, fighting a war in Ukraine. Um, the Obama administration did not provide lethal aid. They provided non-lethal aid to the Ukrainians. But Trump, the Trump administration, as you may remember from the entire conversation during impeachment, um, has actually provided lethal aid, even if there were at times issues of it being held up, which we will not get into. But Russia very much uh, does not enjoy that. And so I could also see this being does sort not of- enjoy that. <laughs> you're, not, you're talking about it like it's like it's a mixed drink. Russia is like, send it back, send it back. <laughs> Understatement of the century by Jen Williams. But, you know, I could very much see this being, you know, Russia saying, look, okay, fine. You want to arm the people we're fighting against? We're going to arm the people you're fighting against, or you know, maybe not arm, but although there is has been long-term kind of intelligence, uh, I guess rumors or beliefs or reports that Russia has been trying to do that a bit more with the Taliban more directly, but saying, look, okay, fine, you're going to send lethal aid to Ukraine. Well, we're going to give the Taliban some cash to kill you. So you know, all all's fair in love and war in in that sense from from the Russian perspective. So there's that. Um, but I want to talk about just a bit before we we get into more about the the Trump kind of side of this scandal. Trump has said, you know, he has denied this, uh, as we said. Um, he has denied that he was briefed on it. We're going to get into that. But he's called it a, a hoax. Um, and one of the reasons why he's uh, and his administration have said that they weren't 
that Trump wasn't briefed on it, um, it was because the intelligence wasn't wasn't valid, wasn't verified, and that there was some dissent within the intelligence community. There were there were people and agencies that didn't think that the intelligence was that strong or didn't have the kind of corroboration that would lead them to agree with an assessment that Russia was doing this. And in particular, Trump yesterday cited the Defense Department, which put out a statement basically saying that they had no corroborating evidence to back up the reports um, of the intelligence from the New York Times. So now that is entirely possible, right? That doesn't mean that the DOD is, is lying and saying, no, we're just you know going to follow the party line on what Trump wants, right? The way intelligence works, and Zach, your explainer uh, on the site on this gets into this in a really smart way, but um, but I'm going to say it now instead. And <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But, you know, the way intelligence works is that, you know, we have, the United States has, uh, you know, over a dozen intelligence agencies that are, you know, range from big ones like the CIA and the NSA to, you know, the inside the Defense Intelligence Agency to there's a small, you know, intelligence shop inside the State Department. There's Homeland Security. There, you know, there's all of these different um, bureaus and agencies and offices that do this stuff. And, you know, the Director of National Intelligence, which is now led by John Ratcliffe, like, it's his job to kind of bring it all together and try to synthesize it and figure out, like, you know, what do we do? So you present it to the president or, you know, to, to National Security Council and say, hey, you know, we have, what, you know, 75% confidence that this is true, but here's the dissenting. Like, you want to present all of those sides. And it's entirely plausible, and this last thing I'll say on this, that the DOD, that the Defense Department, that the Pentagon did not have the same literal actual information, like the same facts that the CIA or NSA would have, because the NSA does, you know, electronic intercepts. So say the NSA is the one that got, and I don't know this for sure, but say they're the ones that have the the data on the wire transfers. Which is right, plausible. The money. Right, which is very plausible. Um, could also be U.S. Treasury and, and their intelligence arm. Like, there's a lot of, of this. But just say for, for sake of argument that the NSA is the one that has the information on these on these wire transfers. Well, they may have access to that information, whereas the Pentagon is, you know, on the ground fighting, and maybe they haven't even seen that, or, you know, they have different intelligence on the ground where they think that there are different reasons that these various attacks happened, and that they think that that's actually more of a factor. So when you put that all together into an intelligence kind of assessment, you have to take into account all of that, that not everyone has is looking at the same information. And that's the point of, like, the senior intelligence briefers in the DNI uh, the director of national intelligence to bring that all together in a kind of coherent package and present it to to the top leadership and, and ultimately if it's solid enough to the president and say look here's what we know here's what we don't know and, and i think that's kind of where a lot of this broke down and, and we'll we'll talk about that more so uh we're gonna take a break now and when we come back well we're, we're gonna talk about the thing that jen said that we're just gonna talk about what does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about the Russia-Afghanistan bounties on U.S. soldiers scandal. But before we get right back into it, I want to note that Jen has been recording this entire episode under a fuzzy gray blanket, and it keeps yep. falling onto like over her eyes in the Zoom meeting that we're using to talk <laughs> each other, and it makes her look like Sia. Like, like she's trying to hide her eyes with some hair or something. It's just the funniest thing in the world to be talking to you all about this, like, literally deadly serious subject. Well, there's a blanket bouncing up and down over Jen's eyes. I'm really eyes. sorry. Like, I'm trying to hold it up, but it's, like, it's really floppy. And so it keeps falling down. And I'm trying to keep it both off my eyes so Zach can see how intense I am and off my mic so it doesn't make mic sounds. So apologies, Mostly to Zach for having to watch the bouncing blanket. I mean, I guess I can just like look at your clavicle tattoo, uh, which, is, <laughs> which is like always staring at me. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> but for, for listeners who don't know, I have a face on my uh, chest for my tattoo. So it's actually, he's not being creepy. Yeah. There's an actual face that he's talking about, just so everyone's clear. <laughs> All right. Moving on from my body art. It's a little little window into how uh, how the worldly gets made in um, pandemic times. But uh, look, we're, we've been talking about this Russia-Afghanistan scandal. Um, since we're both decently confident it happened, uh, the question is, not you know fully, but decently, the question is what is the Trump administration doing about it? And as far as we can tell, the answer is not very much. So the timeline, uh, as far as I know, and I, what I know is because I've read every article that's been published on this that is broken news, uh, is that they the White House was first briefed, the president specifically, by John Bolton when he was National Security Advisor in March 2019. Back then, the intelligence was really sketchy and they weren't advised to do anything about it. There was eventually some other briefing from his successor, Robert C. O'Brien. Uh, it's unclear when that happened. But then one that we know, a concrete date that we know the White House knew about this, and the president specifically, is February 27th, 2020. We know this because, per the New York Times, it was included in the president's daily brief, which is like this really um, very detailed roundup of everything that the intelligence community wants the president to know on a particular day. It happens every day, hence daily brief. Um, and it's something that really should have gotten his attention. We also know that the president had spoken to Vladimir Putin multiple times since then, and as far as we can tell from these calls and what we know about them, never raised the issue of Russia paying Afghan militants to kill Americans, which is a very surprising omission, to put it mildly. Jen, did I leave anything out? No, I mean, I think you know, just talking about the PDB, the President's Daily Brief, um, you know, this is a written document. This is, it, it can extend to, you know, dozens and dozens of pages of, you know, it's written, tailored specifically. It's a product, as they, they say in the intelligence community, it's product for a specific customer, that customer being 100% the president of the United States. So it is written and tailored to how the president consumes information. Um, you may or may not remember uh, that during the Obama administration, he liked to have his on an iPad rather than as like a written physical document he could, you know, go through. Um, so they did it, you know, they figured out a way to kind of do that. Um, so they, they really take pains to kind of tailor this to make sure that the president is getting the information that he or she, mostly he, uh, needs, you know, in, in the most accessible way. Um, but what we know so far from the past three years of the Trump administration, is that the president doesn't necessarily always, I don't know, read the PDB. Um, he, you know, at the same time, every day, usually, or at least several times a week in the Trump administration, is briefed orally, is briefed verbally 
um, by a dedicated briefer, by a professional intelligence official. This right now is a CIA official who does this, but he's also briefed at various different times by the director of national intelligence, by his national security advisor, by CIA director Gina Haspel, and the various different agencies. Um, and so they will come in to the White House and they will give a, an oral verbal briefing of the stuff they think is most important that the president wants to know. So there has been reporting um, last night that, and, and this is certainly plausible, that, uh, you know, given Trump's sensitivities toward what he called the Russia hoax, meaning the Russia impeachment scandal, um, there's reporting that suggests that potentially his briefers may have realized that Trump got a little angry or testy when they would bring up Russia in his verbal briefing and specifically bad things that Russia was doing and would say basically, Russia, Russia, Russia. Why is it always Russia? Why do I have to keep hearing about this? And so this reporting suggests that they would put stuff related to Russia in the, the written document so they could basically say, look, he's still getting the information, but we're going to leave it maybe out of a detailed verbal briefing. Um, and that's really scary. That's really problematic because in some ways you could think of it as like, well, we're going to cover our butts and we're going to make sure that he did technically get the information. But if you're pretty well aware that the president is not super inclined to read through a 20 plus page document on, you know, complex intelligence and national security issues, um, it's kind of like, well, are you really briefing the president on that? So that's what I'll say on that. Uh, there's, I find this very frustrating in a way, right? Like imagine... There is so much money that I would pay if I could read the president's daily brief every morning, right? The amount that I would learn about the world from being able to do that would be amazing as a Just reporter. to be clear, journalists do not pay to read information. Yeah, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Zach is, is, is speaking. Hypothetically, I don't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to bribe U.S. government officials to try to get scoops. That's <laughs> obviously so unethical. Just so we're clear on that. But I, I understand your sentiment. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like, just, it's what like, we wouldn't give to get to be a fly on the wall and read that, right? Yeah, it's fascinating. It has everything that you would, that, you know, you want to know about the world in that day from the U.S. government's perspective. For yeah, Trump like not one of the most, like, one of the most powerful intelligence apparatuses in the world. Like the president is the absolute one person who gets to see everything if he wants to. He can ask for anything. He can see it and go, I don't know if this is strong enough intelligence. Go find me more of X, Y, Z. It's actually the point of these. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not just supposed to be downloaded by the president, right? And just like internalized and accepted uncritically. Um, the the entire American foreign policy architecture depends on the president directing and adjudicating claims between different departments, different, intel different intelligence agencies, and basically serving as an overarching manager, right? If the president finds one claim credible, then they can go say, all right, uh, here's let's start thinking about policy options here. And then they get a slate of policy options from their advisors and they yeah. pick among them or they push on them or try to develop their own version of them. We talk about the president as being a leader, but in this case, it's it's much more like like a CEO or a manager um, when it comes to foreign policy. And it's an indispensable role. Like without the president, then you just have a bunch of different people who are uh, doing things on their own with, in an uncoordinated fashion, basically. And, and no, no one has the authority to tell DOD or CIA or NSA or, uh, I don't know, the Treasury when they're doing their international financial stuff, how to coordinate on these things if not for the president. Um, so for Trump not to read the document and push back 
and well, for Trump not to read the document and assess it critically and try to figure out what conclusions can be drawn from them is functionally a dereliction of duty and helps explain uh, why there's, it seems like there's so much chaos in American foreign policy right now. It's because the president's literally not doing his management job. But it also is the case that Trump could very well have known about this. Like, it's not just that the briefers are trying to cover their butts uh, while they were doing this. It's also possible that the president just heard it, like when John Bolton briefed him personally about this, from what we know from an Associated Press piece, Bolton sat him down and all they talked about was this in March right. 2019. Like they could have misreported it, maybe that's wrong, but this is the kind of thing that really would be unmistakable, right? It's You really want Trump to know about it and his national security advisor is making sure that the president knew about these assessments in March of last year when this was just starting, right? So I... I I'm of two minds. Like, it's possible that Trump just, like, didn't internalize it even after a whole meeting with Bolton because he famously doesn't even pay attention to his oral briefings, right? He sort of will will yell and talk about Fox News and stuff like that. Uh, Again, these are based on insider accounts. This isn't just me freelancing or or devolving (laughs) into, like, anti-Trump vitriol. This is what we know from people who have reported inside the White House and been in these meetings, including Bolton personally. Um, So... There's basically two possibilities, right? Neither of them are good. One, the president doesn't read, and so he didn't know about this, or he, and he forgot, he decided to forget about it because he doesn't like conflicting information, or he remembered it, and he chose not to do anything about it. Either right. one of those possibilities, which are, to my mind, the only two plausible possibilities right now, are, are, are very bad. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Zach now gets the understatement of the of the decade. <laughs> it's your turn now uh, on that being very bad. Um, but here's the thing that I feel like a lot of this coverage uh, is missing. It's absolutely important, yes, 100%, to figure out whether Trump has known this for, you know, at least since March 2019 or since February of this year, right, for several months, and didn't do anything. Right. That, that's an important thing to know. It's important that for all the reasons Zach just laid out, that we figure out what is going on with the intelligence kind of process here. Was there a breakdown? Is there something going on with the way, you know, information is raised up to the president? The argument here, again, that the White House is making is essentially that the intelligence wasn't super solid. There wasn't consensus. Um, so they didn't raise it to the level of the president. Uh, that's... That's a lie, I think. That's pretty clear. I, I I feel like that's definitely not not the most likely possibility. Um it's it's a distant possibility, but it seems like from what we know, that's not what happened. But all that being said, this story broke on Friday. We are now talking to you on the following Thursday. That is several days in which the president Days has, explained. <laughs> right. <laughs> time explained. <laughs> I will not be the one explaining that to you, by the way. So <laughs> But there are, it has been now almost a full week where the president 100% has known that this is an intelligence assessment that exists, which means he had the absolute ability to say, just accepting him at face value, which is not a thing that we should do, but let's just say for the sake of argument that he didn't know. All right, let's just, let's just take him at, at his word for that. He knows now. What is he doing about it? Is he now trying to find that information? Is he saying, I want you to bring me every piece of intelligence? No, I don't think this piece is strong enough. Here's what I want to know more about. It's possible he's doing that. 
But I'm going to say that it's he's probably not. Because, he called it a hoax again, yesterday. Right. As Again, as, as Zach mentioned at the top of the show, he literally tweeted out yesterday, quote, no corroborating evidence to back reports. That's him quoting. And then he says Department of Defense. He's quoting the DOD there. And then Trump goes on to tweet, do people not understand that this is all a made up fake news media hoax started to slander me and the Republican Party? I was never briefed because any info that they may have had did not rise to that level. He said that yesterday. Wednesday, several days after having heard this. And again, we went through at the top of the show what we know now from the intelligence assessment, what we know now from the New York Times, and just that, just the public stuff that like Zach and I and you as a reader and listener have access to. Imagine all the other stuff that Trump could have access to, right? But he's still, he's not even saying, look, I'm looking into it. That would be completely reasonable, right? If this is his argument that he didn't know, hey, look, I didn't know. I'm going to figure out why. That's a different issue. But I'm going to look into it now. And I promise if there's something there, you know, Russia, I will deal with it. He has said something to that effect that if it were true, like, believe me, I would handle it. But he's still straight up not saying I'm not sure on this, but saying it's a hoax, which with all the information we have is really disturbing because it essentially feels like to me, maybe you disagree, Zach, that he's once again giving Russia a pass. Oh, and no. And this time, it's on potentially offering bounties to kill U.S. soldiers. I had my head in my hands the whole time Jen was just talking there because I think that's absolutely spot on and it's very frustrating, right? This yeah. frustrating is, is, again, another, this is just a classic understatement show, right? It's, it's, it's incomprehensible to me that a yeah. president would do something like this. I mean, the best way I can think about it is, I, I don't know how many of you listeners remember a few years ago, the the Benghazi attack, where you know the U.S. ambassador to Libya and a few U.S. Uh, personnel were killed in yeah. a, in a terrorist attack in the city of Benghazi, uh, and you know there was this big speculation at the time, uh, especially coming from uh, Republican officials because this was in uh, an election year, 2012, that President Obama and then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton uh, did nothing when they had information that U.S. troops were under fire. And not only did nothing, but according to some of the more uh, extravagant conspiracy theories, they actually uh, called off a strike that could have potentially saved the ambassador and others uh, who were killed. Now, this was not true, right? It was pretty clearly not true uh, pretty early on in the investigation of that scandal that didn't stop Republicans from investigating it for the remainder of the Obama administration. Uh, But everyone thought it would be a really, really bad thing if the president had information that Americans were at risk, American lives were at stake and chose not to act. Right. And like now that is what happened, right? More or less indisputably, because as Jen pointed out, American lives, we know potentially still at stake. The information we have is that the Russians were offering the bounties in 2019. We don't actually know that they're not still offering them. Uh, And, and Trump has done nothing. He's done nothing to prevent the Russians or deter them from doing something in the future. He did nothing all of last year. He did nothing in February, as far as we can tell. I mean, this is what Republicans accuse the Obama administration of doing in Benghazi in their most learned conspiracy theories. Right. And and it's happening. And it's it's barely a blip. I understand that we're we're consumed with some other really, really big stuff right now. But to me, it's it's like it's so it's all these different strands of the Trump administration's 
problems and, and scandals, especially when it relates to foreign policy, rolled into one concise story and disturbing story. Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's not, you know, it's possible that he has, you know, I'm just going to say theoretically, right? It is theoretically possible in the world of possibilities that he has behind the scenes in ways that we don't know, you know, said that we need to do X, Y, Z or ordered his policy team to do, you know, ABC to increase force protection uh, in, in Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. And that we just don't know. But the fact that he is publicly, again, yesterday, tweeting, calling this a fake news media hoax, suggests pretty strongly that he's not buying it. And you'd, you'd expect that if there's this kind of wealth of evidence that at the very least, Trump would put out a tweet that says something like, hey, Russia, even if you didn't do this, but if you ever think about doing it, we're not going to let you do that. You, you would right? say, like, I can imagine it, right? Like big consequences, exclamation point. Don't mess with USA, exclamation point. America first, all caps, exclamation point. Right? Like I can right. write this Trump tweet. Right. Like. Trump threatened fire and fury to rain down fire and fury on North Korea when, you know, Kim Jong-un was threatening the U.S. with nuclear weapons. It is not out of the realm of possibility that Trump would try to be a tough guy and say something. It's not like it's not something that he's comfortable doing, right? But it seems for some reason, and I'm not trying to conspiracy monger here about, you know, Trump, Russia, collusion, all that nonsense. All I'm saying is that from what I can see, Trump seems to yet again be accepting the Russian kind of view of what's going on. And at the very least, refusing to say anything even remotely suggestive to Russia that, Russia, you better watch yourself. Don't mess with us. And is instead seemingly rolling over and just saying, no, nope, it's a hoax, which is a thousand percent what Vladimir Putin would love to have happen, right? To have the U.S. president get intelligence reports that are seemingly pretty credible that Russia is paying bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers and to have the U.S. president go, that sounds like a hoax, fake news, and just move on with his life. That is astounding. On the eternal question note of what is the deal with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin, we no one has the answer to that question. Maybe Putin does. I don't know. We're going to leave you there. Uh, you can ponder it on your own. I want to thank our producer, Jackson Bierfeld, for all the great work that he does. And I want to encourage all of you to rate and subscribe and review Worldly. It is always Jen's birthday somewhere, maybe, <laughs> in some parallel universe. If you do want to read Time Explained, by the way, Dylan Matthews uh, has a great piece on the site about the Apple Watch and Time Explained. Uh, and uh, and Emily Vanderwerf, our, our, oh, yeah, uh, our, our brilliant, yeah. has a, a great uh, piece that she puts up every day that says, what day is it? And talks about how we seem to not know how time works anymore. So anyway, time confusing. Rate, subscribe and review. We'll talk to all y'all later. Bye. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. 
So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.